0: Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and you're listening to the Equip Project podcast. The Equip Project is designed to help young people engage with the Christian faith in a thoughtful and reasonable way. Our goal is to help provide clarity and understanding as we seek to tackle many of the cultural and intellectual challenges to Christianity. I'm back with Jim Crooks, and we're just seven days away from Christmas. Jim, how are you feeling? Are you excited? All the Christmas presents bought?
1: Well, I'm pretty excited, but uh, I haven't bought any presents. Amazon is a wonderful invention. Oh, yeah, I'm really, really, I'm really slacking this year.
0: I'm getting nervous, actually. Um, I'm going to be online shopping, I think, for the remainder of this week.
1: Um, Forecast for a white Christmas, Jim? Any thoughts on that? Well, the papers are predicting snow for the next few days, I think, but uh, I think statistically uh, unlikely on Christmas Day. In the whole of the 20th century, there have only been four white Christmases. That's actually crazy. I
0: didn't didn't realise that. And yet our Christmas cards always show these snow scenes. It's like um, the real fantasy we all have for Christmas, the Bing Crosby dream of a white Christmas.
1: Yeah, well, I'm going to lodge an entirely useless fact in your brain. The reason we all dream of a white Christmas is because in 1815, a volcano erupted in Indonesia. That is very random. A volcano? Tell us a bit more about that. Well, it was called Mount Tambora, And it spewed out so much volcanic ash into the atmosphere that global temperatures cooled. And so for the next eight years, there was a white Christmas in Britain and Ireland. And it so happened that those eight years coincided with the childhood of a boy called Charles Dickens. And we all know that the novels of Dickens are full of Christmas snow scenes. And it was his novels which lodged the idea of a white Christmas in the Victorian mind, and it has remained there ever since. To be honest, Jim, I actually love that fact.
0: I don't think it's useless at all. I'm going to be, I'm going to be pulling that out at all my Christmas events now over the,
1: over the festive period. I guarantee you will. Uh, at some point in the Christmas period, when you can't kind of think of anything to say to Rachel's relations. You know when there's that awful, <laughs> awkward pause. The sensible voice in your head will be screaming, "Do not mention the volcano. Don't mention the volcano." Uh, but you will, you will. I guarantee you will hear yourself clear your throat and ask some bewildered uncle, have you ever wondered why we dream of a white Christmas? (laughs) Yeah, I genuinely can see that
0: happening. Um, I've been thinking a lot myself about the traditional image of a white Christmas recently, or or just Christmas in general. Um, For Charles Dickens, Christmas was about family and home, as well as this, uh, this snow scene you mentioned. And we close the door on a cold world outside and we enjoy the warmth of loving relationships. That's why Chris Rea sings Driving Home for Christmas every year. Christmas cards betray this idyllic scene of chestnuts roasting on an open fire. The whole scene is snug and comforting and secure. And I think, you know, there is truth to that. You know, Christmas is kind of cozy and warm for, for many of us. But it isn't easy to connect what we might call the theology of Christmas with that. So maybe on this podcast, let's start with the theology and then we'll come back to Dickens. In theological terms, then, what was going on on that first Christmas? C.S. Lewis once said the central assertion of Christianity is that God entered his own universe as a man, a man called Jesus Christ. I was wondering if you could unpack that statement for us.
1: Well, it might be more accurate to say that the Son of God entered his own universe as a man. Um, Theologically, there is only one being called God, but he is not monolithic. He's no solitary ego. At the very centre of ultimate reality, we find relationship, we find mutuality, because God is tripersonal, and those divine persons have been revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so what does the term Son of God mean then? Okay, well, when the New Testament uses the term Son of God, it's describing the second person of the Trinity. The Son of God is eternal. His Sonship is a description of his nature. The Son of God was never born. He never became. He's not a creature. Sonship here has nothing to do with origin, because the Son is unoriginated. So we need to understand the birth of Christ as the entry into the world of the Son of God who has existed for all eternity. So if
0: the Son of God is eternally divine, what actually then happened at the thing we call the incarnation? Did Christ lose any of his divine attributes when he became human? Did he stop knowing everything, for example? uh, Or did
1: he stop um, being all-powerful? What was going on there? No, the Son of God didn't stop being God when he became a man. So he didn't lose any of his divine attributes. We should never think that God changed into a man, He added humanity to himself. Somebody famously said, the arithmetic of the incarnation never involves subtraction. It only involves addition. So at the incarnation, the Son of God became what he had never been before. When the divine word became flesh, his nature didn't change at all. But God was traveling a road he had not traveled before.
0: I think that's a hard concept to get your head around. So Jesus had a real human nature, a rational soul made up of mind, emotions, and will. So that means that Jesus's mind was subject to the same laws of perception or memory and logic and development that govern me and you, Jim. Luke tells us that the child Jesus grew in wisdom just as he grew in physical stature. He observed and learned and remembered and applied. So how can we square that with what you've just said about the Lord Jesus still
1: being all-powerful and all-knowing? of course, there is a mystery here. Perhaps the best we can say is that the divine word chose to use the fabric of a human mind to think. He chose to learn. He chose not to reach for his subliminal powers to know and do everything. There's a Scottish theologian called Donald MacLeod, and he says, To be all-knowing, like being all-powerful, was a luxury always within reach, but incompatible with his rules of engagement. He chose to serve within the limitations of finitude. So when the New Testament describes the Lord Jesus Christ as Emmanuel, God with us, it's saying something incredibly shocking. The eternal creator became a man, a real flesh and blood man with a mind, emotions and will. God was choosing to come close to us so that we could understand him and forge a relationship with him. And in so doing, Christ answers the lie that God is remote and unknowable in such a different category from our lives that he's irrelevant to life on earth.
0: Yeah, I think we really underplay this fact because it's actually one of the most shocking claims ever made that Jesus of Nazareth is Emmanuel,
1: is God with us. Yes, I would describe it as breathtakingly beautiful. In Christ, the absolute becomes a particular. The invisible becomes visible. As the Nicene Creed puts it, light of light God of God enters into our world. So imagine a young Jewish boy running through the back streets of a little hick town called Nazareth. See him laugh and get out of breath as he enjoys boisterous games in the street. Maybe he's so lost in a scrum of ten-year-olds, you can't quite see which one is God with us. God of God and light of light. When he's knocked to the ground, he dusts himself down and gets on with the game because that's what God is like. Then fast forward a few years and see him as a full-grown man. He isn't carried around like some rich sultan propped up on satin cushions. He is no golden child. He walks the same roads that we walk. He breathes our air. When we want him out of the way, he steps back with politeness and courtesy. He's one of us. When it rains, he gets wet. The eternal creator who invented the sun shivers when it gets cold. You know, Some people try to get their understanding of Christianity by, I don't know, visiting those grand cathedrals or examining priceless Christian art. But this story of the Incarnation is completely different from all those sorts of images. We'll never understand God by examining the gilded ceilings of the Sistine Chapel. We'll never find his heart by watching the processions of the great and good walk down the aisle of an English cathedral.
0: Yeah, it is just so far removed from all that cultural grandeur isn't it and it's an amazing thought that to encounter God instead we actually kneel before an animal's feeding trough and see this poverty-stricken Jewish girl lay her firstborn in a bed of straw and to think that's what God is like is what is extraordinary Jim it's mind blowing the Christmas story reminds us that the son of God became poor and left behind all the outward manifestations of his splendor in heaven and and gave it up. He became poor so that all he could give was
1: himself. Yeah, G.K. Chesterton wrote a famous poem, and it contains this line, Glory to God in the lowest. Uh, And the second verse reads like this, Who is proud when the heavens are humble? Who mounts if the mountains fall, if the fixed stars topple and tumble, and a deluge of love drowns them all? Who rears up his head for a crown? Who holds up his will for a warrant? Who strives with the starry torrent when all that is good goes down?
0: It might be a good thing this Christmas for us to reintroduce ourselves to the real Jesus, if you like. Maybe if we stepped away from some of the medieval images, the icons and so on, and used the gospel records to encounter Christ for the first time. What, what do you think of that?
1: Yeah, I actually, I tried that experiment recently. I, I read through Matthew's gospel and, and did my best to imagine I was encountering Jesus for the first time. And the first thing that hits you is the way he speaks. He has this ability to say incredibly deep things in a simple way. And not just simple, but memorable. He tells stories. Some of them are funny. All of them catch you and make you think. And he talks in such direct and passionate language. Yeah, I think that's a really
0: really cool approach, Jim. I'm going to try that myself over this Christmas period, because there's also his character. And I think there's just something unique and beautiful about the Lord's moral character. He's courageous and he's honest. He's quite fierce in his analysis of hypocrisy. In fact, the Lord basically invented the word hypocrite for us. But at the same time, he's never quarrelsome. When people want him out of the way, he steps back with politeness and courtesy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose the most obvious thing is that, the, is that people enjoyed the Lord's company. He could get on with anybody, no matter what their social status was. Our Lord was very sociable. He liked people. But he never courted popularity. He never flattered. I love the way his human nature is like a laser, um, so that he can see the very worst in people, but in fact he sees the best in them. So he can see past us the insecurities in Zacchaeus, insecurities that made that man so hateful, And he could see what that man could become if only he could learn that he was accepted and loved by God. And Jesus could see past Peter's weaknesses and fears and see the rock that the Apostle Peter would become in later life.
0: Let's return to Charles Dickens for a moment, Jim. Okay. His novels paint this idyllic scene of chestnuts roasting on an open fire. The whole scene, as we mentioned, is snug and it's comforting and it's secure. And I've been thinking recently that there's, that there's a sense in which Dickens gets right to the very truth of Christmas, because Christ came to turn a cold heart into a warm, intimate place of friendship and fellowship. In a sense, this was Jesus's real destination, not just coming into the world, but ultimately into the believer's heart. Christ came with the express intention, in fact, of taking up residence in our hearts and in doing so, establishing a warm, intimate relationship with us. I think that's a wonderful thought. Yeah,
1: one one evening he was having supper with his disciples and he said to them, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. I just love that phrase, we will make our home with them. You see, when somebody becomes a Christian, The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, takes up residence within their personality. And he builds that first-person subjective knowledge of God into our hearts. And that was always the intention for human beings, to live in intimate fellowship with their creator. Of course, our sin ruined all that. But Christ came to restore the relationship between God and us in the intimacy of our hearts. I was thinking recently about one of the most famous uh, paintings ever uh, painted. It's by Holman Hunt. And he produced this painting called The Light of the World. And it pictures the Saviour knocking on the door of somebody's heart. And the door is covered in ivy and there's no handle on the outside. And that's because the door of the human heart can only be opened from the inside. Christ will never invade our personalities by sheer force. He won't bang the door or knock it down. All you'll hear is a polite knock. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, says Revelation 3 and 20. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And that is an invitation to have fellowship with Christ.
0: I think that's a lovely thought for people who might otherwise be lonely at Christmas, Jim. Because not everyone gets to enjoy the Dickens vision of of a family Christmas.
1: That's right. I I know an an elderly widow uh, who is going to spend Christmas alone. Her Christmas meal will be a microwave turkey dinner for one and she'll eat it quietly at a small kitchen table but yet that scene isn't as sad as, as some people might think because that elderly lady is not alone because in her heart there is this place of warm intimate fellowship with her lord it may look cold on the outside but on the inside there are chestnuts roasting on an open fire she is sharing a meal with her best and her heavenly friend the one who walks every weary mile with her one day he will come to bring her home but for now he and his daughter share quiet companionship on Christmas Day. Thanks,
0: Jim. Those are really helpful thoughts to carry with us into the Christmas period. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas, and I hope all of you listening have a great Christmas period and experience the real joy that comes with knowing Jesus Christ. We're going to be back on Christmas Day with a short Christmas reflection, but until then, we wish you all the very best. If you would like to suggest a topic or question we can think about together in the new year, please email theequipproject at gmail.com or reach out to us via Instagram.